1: thing is just about assigning yourself the right story. I didn't want to go to college, though my dad wanted me to go to college. Why did you come back to Omaha? When I came back, I had about
2: $175,000, and I thought that was all I would need to live the rest of my life. Have you ever run into that guy again?
1: No, he needs protection now.
2: <laughs> when you had your first annual meeting, how many people showed up at that?
1: Well, we had 12, but you had to count my Aunt Katie and my Uncle
2: Fred. Any word of advice you give to somebody who's a young investor who would like to emulate you...
1: Would you fix your tie,
2: please? Well, people wouldn't recognize me if my tie was fixed, but okay.
1: <laughs> Just well, leave I it this
2: way. All right. I don't consider myself a journalist. And nobody else would consider myself a journalist. I began to take on the life of being an interviewer, even though I have a day job of running a private equity firm. How do you define leadership? What is it that makes somebody tick? Appreciate it. uh, Thank you.
1: All right. Well, right. All
2: right. We're at your favorite restaurant in Omaha, Goratz. Why do you like it so much? Is it the food or the price or the combination of both?
1: It's the food and the price and the heritage. I, I, uh, four generations of the Garat family were involved here. Garat and I went to grammar school together. And so, I've, I've known the people over the years. The steaks are great, you know. the prices
2: are right. so. I had lunch here earlier today. It was very good. It wasn't that expensive and uh, I quite enjoyed it. A lot cheaper than New York and Washington. A lot. That's why I buy, I buy
1: people lunch here
2: and then they can buy me the lunch in New York. That's well, a good deal good arbitrage. You grew up in Omaha, but then you moved to Washington when your father became a congressman. Right. How did you start your business career in Washington with, with various pinball machines or golf businesses? Yeah, I
1: always like to have a couple of businesses going in. And the best business we had was the pinball machine business, which was the Wilson coin operated machine company. And that was named after the high school my partner and I went to. But But we had we had our machines in barber shops, and the barbers always wanted to put us in machines with flippers, which were just coming in. But those machines cost 350 bucks, whereas an old obsolete machine cost 25 bucks. So we always told them we'd take it up with Mr. Wilson,
2: the mythical Mr.
1: Wilson. He was one tough guy, I've got to tell you.
2: <laughs> so when you graduated from high school, you weren't as interested in academics, I assume, at that time? I was not interested. And your high school yearbook said he's likely to be a stockbroker, but he's very good in math. Why did you go to Wharton, and why did you only stay two years there? I didn't want to go to college, and but my dad wanted me to go to college. and
1: We didn't have SATs then, but he practically would have done the SATs for me. So he, in the truth, I, 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 I always wanted to please my dad. I mean, he was a hero to me and still is. But So he kept kind of jollying me along and said, well, why don't we just fill out an application for the hell of it? And so uh, he suggested Wharton, and uh, I applied there, and they let me in. And... After the first year, I wanted to quit and go into business, and my dad said, well, give it one more year. And so I went the second year, and uh, I said, I still want to quit. And uh, he said, well, you know, you've got almost enough credits. If you go to Nebraska, which, which I was quite willing to do,
2: for one year, you can get out in three years. So that's what I did. Has Wharton ever called you up and said, "Well, you are a half graduate; you should give us some money"? Or they never bother you? Uh, so far, they haven't tried that line, but they may after they watch this. So after that, you wanted to go to business school? Yeah, I'd I'd
1: won some minor scholarship at the at Nebraska to go to any graduate school I wanted to that they'd give me five hundred bucks, and so I applied. My dad suggested Harvard, so and, I I applied. <laughs> And you didn't get in? I didn't get in. I mean, it took 10 minutes for the guy, a guy near Chicago interviewed me. So I spent about 10 hours going to see him. And he looked at me and (laughs) he said, forget it.
2: Have you ever run into that guy again or have you ever heard from him since? No,
1: he needs protection now.
2: (laughs) So I guess Harvard doesn't come after you for money because they turn you down. But uh, you went to Columbia Business School. And why did you go to Columbia?
1: Well, I, I was at the University of Omaha, what was then called the University of Omaha's library in August, and I was leafing through catalogs, and I just happened to see that Columbia had Graham and Dodd as teachers. And I would read their book, but I had no idea that they were teaching. So I wrote uh, Dean Dodd, and I said, dear Dean Dodd, I said, I thought you guys were dead. And I said, but now that I find you're alive, I'd really like to come to Columbia
2: if you can get me in. So you did, I assume, pretty well at Columbia Business School? I did okay there, yeah. You worked for Mr. Graham and his partnership, and how did that work?
1: Well, it it was terrific in the sense I was working for my hero, but uh, Ben was going to retire in a couple of years, uh, and so I was only back there about a year and a half. But but every day I was excited about being able to work for him.
2: So what you were good at was picking stocks according to his formula, which was to look for companies that were undervalued. Now we call it value investing. Um, did you realize that he had some principles that were very unique? And is that why you followed uh, his guidance?
1: Well, by the time I went to work for him, I probably could have recited the words in his book better than he could have. I'd read his books multiple times. And so it was more a question of being inspired by him than it was by learning something new from him. Why did you come back to Omaha? I, 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 I wanted to come back to Omaha. I, I had made many friends in New York. I had a lot of friends in New York. But uh, we had two kids by that time time. And I lived in White Plains. i take the train and i take the train back. And it didn't strike me as, as much of a life compared to, to being here in Omaha. And and both sets of grandparents were alive at that time. And it just, and uncles and aunts. And I, 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 Omaha was a
2: more pleasant place to live. All right. So you, you buy a house here? I rent a house. You rented a house. I rent a history. house
1: at, for $175 a month.
2: Okay. And when did you buy your house that you're still in? In 1958. My, my third... Third child was uh, on the way. So you start a
1: partnership here, and how did you raise money? Well, David, actually, when I came back, I had about $175,000. And I thought that was all I would need to live the rest of my life I could take care of everything
2: so I really planned to go to school I, th- I thought about going to law school just think how successful you could have been as a lawyer that's true I I I've, I've regretted it ever right. since I know <laughs> so in your first partnership when you had people cobble together some money how much money did you actually cobble together
1: well we met one night in May early in May in, of 1956 and there were s- seven people there aside from myself and they put in hundred and five thousand dollars and I put in a hundred dollars So we started with $105,100, and I gave them a little
2: piece of paper called The Ground Rules. But then ultimately you ended that partnership, I thought. Well,
1: what happened was that between May of 56 and January 1st of 62, I started 10 more partnerships. I made a mistake. I had no secretary, no accountant or anything. So every time I'd buy a stock, I'd break it into 11 tickets. I'd write 11 checks. I kept 11 sets of books, filed 11 tax returns, and and, and I did it all myself. I, and I took delivery of all the stocks because I was worried it was other people's money, so I go down to the bank and have these things delivered and drafted. Finally, I got wise, and on January 1st, 62, I put all 11 of the previous partnerships together in something called a Buffett Partnership. I ran that till the end of 1969, at which time I dissolved it.
2: You dissolved that one, but um, then in 1969,
1: you started a new partnership? No, in 1969, I, I mailed by that time we had about 105 million dollars in the partnership and about 70 million or so of that was in cash to be distributed and the balance was in three
2: stocks mostly Berkshire Hathaway that I distributed pro rata to everybody okay and then you started buying more stocks through the vehicle Berkshire Hathaway stocks and and, companies. and businesses yeah what would you say is the reason for your ability to do this is that you studied the companies more than anybody else you stuck to your principles you're smarter than other people, people were just caught up with fads, you didn't get caught up with fads. What would you say is the reason for the success?
1: Well, the first two to quite an extent. We, We bought businesses that we thought were decent businesses at sensible prices and we had good people to run them, but we also bought marketable securities in Berkshire. Over time, the emphasis shifted from marketable
2: securities over to buying businesses. What was the theory behind buying a railroad? Because people thought they were kind of fossils as businesses. The railroad business had a bad century. They're kind of like the Chicago Cubs. Everybody has a
1: bad century now and then.
2: Over the years, you've bought a number of companies and had stakes in companies. One of the ones that I know very well is Washington Post. How did that come about?
1: Well, in 1973, uh, the Washington Post Company had gone public in 1971, right about the Pentagon Papers' time. time. But in 73, uh, the Nixon administration uh, was, through B.B. Rebozo, who was a pal of Nixon's, they were challenging uh, the licenses of two of the Florida television stations, the Post owned. So the stock went from 37 down to 16. Now at 16 there were about 5 million shares outstanding. So the whole Washington Post company was selling for 80 million dollars, and that included the newspaper, four big TV stations, Newsweek, you know, and some other assets, and no debt to speak of. So the Washington Post company, which was intrinsically worth four or five hundred million dollars was selling for about 80 million in the market. We bought most of our stock at about the equivalent of 100 million in the market. And and it was it was ridiculous. I mean, you had a business that unquestionably was worth four or five times what it was selling for and uh, Nixon wasn't going to put them out of business.
2: When you're doing these analyses then and now, do you have computers that help you or how did you actually read all did you just get printed materials or how did you in those days get the materials to read about the Washington Post and how do you do it today?
1: Well, uh, same, pretty much the same way, except there's fewer opportunities now. But uh, I met Bob Woodward back, and, 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 and he'd just come out with all the presidents men. And when, all of a sudden, as a, below 30 years of age, he was getting quite wealthy. And we had, we had uh, breakfast or lunch over at the Madison Hotel. And he said, what do I do with this money? And I said, I said investing is just about assigning yourself the right story. I said, imagine Ben Bradley this morning said to you, What is the Washington Post company worth? What would you do if you have to write the story in a month? You'd go out and interview TV brokers and newspaper brokers and the owners, and you'd try and value each asset. I said, that's what I do. I assign myself the right story. And it's it's nothing more than that. Now, there's some stories I can't write. If you ask me to write a story on, you know, what is some glamorous but nonprofit-making business worth, I don't know how to write that story. But if you ask me to write a story on what is – atomic electric power worth or something like that, I, I can write the story, and that's what I'm doing every day. I'm assigning myself a
2: story, and then I go out and... So you get read. the annual reports, and yes. then you read them, just right. like other people might read novels, you read annual reports. That's right. And then do you do the calculations of what things are worth in your head, or sure. do you have computers that help no. you?
1: No, if you, need, if you need to carry something out to four-decibel places, forget it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> today, um, do you use a computer today, even? I use it to my bridge,
1: and I use it to, I use it to go to uh, uh, search. A, a lot,
2: yeah. So there is a computer in your office you used. I, I don't
1: use the. I don't have one in the office, but I have one at home.
2: And like for a smartphone, if somebody wants to, you know, get a hold of you, can they get a hold of you on a smartphone or a mobile telephone?
1: Uh, no, a smartphone is too smart for me.
2: And uh, a computer you use rarely.
1: Well, I use it quite. bit. one of the trick questions that uh, Bill Gates and I give when we're talking in the audience is, who's on the computer more, excluding email? And the answer is I probably am, because I probably play 12 hours a week of bridge on it,
2: and then I use it a lot for, for search. But who who do you play bridge with? Is it anonymous people on bridge? Or no, the, I'm, regular... I'm,
1: my name is T-Bone, and I play with a woman in San Francisco who goes by the name of Sirloin, and she's a two-time world champ, and I'm Thank two-time you. world chump. So we're, we're good, we're, we've are we're been playing together for decades.
2: And are you at the world-class level after all these no, years? No, no. I...
1: I she you couldn't have a better teacher than she is but the student had limitations.
2: <laughs> now you mentioned Bill Gates. Um how did you actually come to know Bill Gates? It
1: came about because uh, Meg Greenfield who was the editor of the editorial page uh, of the Post called me in the late 1980s and she said Warren, I've always loved the Pacific Northwest she'd grown up there and she said I want to know whether I have enough money to be able to afford to buy a house uh a, kind of a vacation type house. Uh, on Bainbridge Island near Seattle. And I said, Meg, anybody that calls and asks me whether they got enough money does have enough money. So when right. they don't call, they don't have it. So she bought the house. So she invited me and Kay Graham and a few people out to the house. And she knew the elder Gateses. So she called Mary Gates. And then Mary went to work on Bill to try and get him to come. And Bill said, I'm not going to go down there and meet some stockbroker <laughs> or something. And Mary was a very firm type and said, you're coming. And he said, I'm not coming. And finally, they started negotiating hours. And she said, four hours. And he said, one hour, and, and this went back and forth, and he came down, and when we met, we talked for about 11 hours straight without being
2: interrupted. Wow. Yeah. So that was the beginning of the relationship. Yeah, we, we hit it off. But you never bought any of his shares, or you just never... I, I
1: bought 100 shares just to keep track of what this young
2: kid was doing. Okay. And uh, he's now on your board, is that right? That's correct. So um, the relationship has become very close, and you get involved with him in many philanthropic things as well?
1: Oh, yeah. yeah we, 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 have, we have a lot of fun talking.
2: So let me just ask about the philanthropic things that you've done with Bill and with Melinda. How did that idea of giving away your money to somebody else's foundation come to you? Well, uh, I originally had planned that that
1: my first wife would handle the, the disposition of, well, everything that we, we had. It, uh, we, and we came to that conclusion when we were in our 20s. And uh, we started something called the Buffett Foundation over 50 years ago. But it uh, didn't give away a lot of money uh, uh, during those intermediate years because I felt I was compounding at a rate that I could give away billions instead of millions if I waited a little while she died in 2004 so that that plan uh, disappeared and then I was faced with the question of how do I give away this money in a way that that
2: goes to the people I want without me doing all the work So you called Bill or Melinda one day and said, guess what? I'm going to give you the bulk of my fortune. What was their reaction? It wasn't quite as elegant as that, actually.
1: (laughs) You know, I've been asked that. I don't remember that clearly, but I I just uh, at some point I did call them up. uh, It was done over the phone, I think. And
2: And you didn't ask them to say, well, call the Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett Foundation? You did not want your name on it? No, I did not think that would do any good. (laughs) So you're on the board of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation now? That is true, but they run it. (laughs)
1: I'm gonna give him a
2: stock. <laughs> okay. What would you say are some of the highlights, the deals that you're most proud of? Um, you know, let's take one that you did recently. The biggest deal you've ever done was precision cash parts. It's so about thirty-seven billion dollars in purchase. Yeah, funds. yeah, it was it
1: was between thirty-two and thirty-three billion of cash, and then we assumed about four billion of debt.
2: Okay. So how much uh, you, for to spend thirty seven billion, you, you spent a year studying the company? No. <laughs> um, how much time did you spend with the CEO? I met the uh,
1: CEO I think on July 1st of last last year and he happened to be calling on certain shareholders and one of the fellows in our office had had a position in the stock for some time so it was an accident I met him if I'd been out playing golf or something I, it never would have happened but I went in and I liked him I heard him talk for 30 minutes and I then said to the fellow in our office, I said, Call him tomorrow and, and and say if he would like to receive a cash bid from Berkshire Hathaway we would supply one and if he wouldn't like to receive one, you know, forget we ever called
2: that was it. Did you hire any investment bankers to help no. you with the analysis? No. <laughs> Do you ever hire investment bankers to help you analyze a company? Not to help analyze a company. Sometimes, sometimes we, they are involved in the deal,
1: and we're perfectly willing to
2: pay a fat commission. One time, you told me a story about how an investment banker was hired by somebody you were going to try to buy. What happened on that was I, I said we'd pay thirty-five dollars a share uh, for a company, then,
1: then uh, American Energy, and and uh, they hired an investment banker, and the investment banker came out and spent about a week, and they. They, they they kept they wanted to send they sent a big bill at the end and they said well you've got to increase your price to make us look good I said I, I'm not really worried about whether you look good so they hung around almost for about a week and finally they called up and sort of pleaded and said you know can't you increase your price somewhat so that we can send a bill and. Get paid appropriately for our non services. And so I said, okay, you can tell them we'll pay $35.05 and you can say you got the last nickel out of me. So that's what we paid, $35.05. Right.
2: Normally you make a price and you don't. Buy. Right. And do you ever do any unfriendly deals? No. 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 Why is Although that- you can
1: say Berkshire Hathaway originally was an unfriendly deal. I, but no, we're, not, we're just not interested. Not that unfriendly deals are necessarily bad. I mean, there are managements that should right. be replaced. But
2: now. People must call you every day and say, I have a deal for you, it's perfect. And how often do any of these deals ever pan out? They don't
1: call every day, and we've made our, our cri- criteria fairly clear. So there's relatively few that call. And when somebody calls, I can usually tell within two or three minutes whether a deal is likely to happen or not. There's, so, there's just a half a dozen fillers and it either makes it through the fillers or it doesn't.
2: One time I was told that you got a letter from somebody from Israel Correct. saying I'd like you to look at my company. Now what's the likelihood that somebody from Israel sends a company a prospectus to you over the transom and you say you're going to buy it? And you did buy it.
1: So. Yeah, we did buy it and we, gave, we bought 80% of it at that time for $4 billion and then we later bought the remaining 20%. But
2: before you bought it did you go to Israel to look at the company? No, I did not go to Israel. I, I hope it's there. <laughs> And you were happy with what you bought? Absolutely. And uh, you also bought uh, one of the biggest railroads in the world. That's correct. And that's worked out okay recently? That's worked out okay. What was the theory behind buying a railroad? Because people thought they were kind of fossils as businesses. The railroad business had a bad century. They're kind of like the Chicago Cubs. Right. Everybody has a bad century now and
1: then. But finally, the the railroad industry got rationalized to quite an extent and modernized. And and the railroad business is a good business. It's not a, it's not a great business, but it's a good business. And in the fall of... 2009, we already owned a fair amount of BNSF, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, and the price, it looked like we could do it at a sensible price. So uh, that was a Thursday, and on Friday, I said we would pay uh, $100 per share if the directors were interested, and he checked with the directors over the weekend, and the, the following s- Sunday, we had a contract signed. Somebody from the White House called and said, would you mind having a tax named after you? And I said, well, <laughs> If all the diseases have been taken away, why shouldn't I? I'll, I'll take
2: a tax. The David Rubenstein Show. Still, is the best place in the world to invest. Is the United States?
1: Well, certainly, it has to be the, the best. Of, it's the best I know of, and it—it's it, it, it's been wonderful. I mean, nobody has sold America shorts in 1776 and and, <laughs> and enjoyed that. The, what happened subsequently.
2: But uh, we were having roughly 2% or less lower growth in the last couple of years. Do you think that it's possible to ever grow three and four and 5% again in this economy? There will be some years, but 2% growth, if you have
1: a little less than 1% population growth, means in one generation, 25 years call it, that we will add maybe eighteen or nineteen thousand dollars of gdp per capita family of seventy five thousand so so we're just beginning one percent you know my my life has been a product of compound interest it may be better to do it at higher rates but if you have an already prosperous economy and we've got the most prosperous economy the world's ever seen and you keep compounding it over time people will be living far better twenty years from now than they are now
2: you have said your secretary pays a higher tax rate than you do and Counting, counting uh,
1: payroll taxes, yes.
2: Right, and Still so you're in favor of changing that. Some years ago, somebody
1: from the White House, not the president, called and said that they'd read my views on right. taxation, and they said, would you mind having a tax named after you? And I said, well, if, if all the diseases have been taken away, why shouldn't I? I'll, I'll take a tax. So, and so uh, they've referred to this. But I, I really do feel that anybody that's making millions of dollars a year Should have a combined payroll and income tax that that uh, is at least 30 percent and in my office everybody in the office does have that except me
2: how do you think you became a democrat when your father was a big republican and you live in a very conservative state how do you think that evolved
1: civil rights more than anything else i mean i i I didn't think about it when i was you know 12 years old or 14 years old and i went to alice Steele, and it was a, a a school for blacks just to few hundred yards away and and it it just never dawned on me how different life was for for other people and then as I got to see more of the world I just decided that there were a lot of things that uh, were unfair and the Democrats seem to be doing a little bit more about
2: it in uh, Berkshire Hathaway today you have an annual meeting that attracts roughly 40,000 people Correct. Uh, when you had your first annual meeting how many people showed up at that
1: well we had 12 but but you had to count my aunt Katie and my
2: uncle Fred and a couple of the managers. We we usually had about two outsiders. And when you started Berkshire Hathaway, did you ever, in your wildest imagination, think that you could build a company that became one of the biggest in the world? Was that ever in your plans? Or? No,
1: no. I, I just I've always just kind of put one foot in front of the other.
2: What is it that you would like to have as your legacy? As you think? Well, about I'd like it? to be the oldest man that ever lived. Actually, okay. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I I like
1: teaching, and so if if. if I've been a decent teacher, and I have a lot of
2: university students come out every year. And today, um, is there anything on your bucket list that you would like to do that you haven't done? I'd have done it. I, you know, if
1: there's anything I wanted to do, I'd do it. Money has no utility to me. Time has utility to me. but But money in terms of... Going, making trips or doing, owning more houses or having a boat or something. It has no utility to me whatsoever. It has a lot of utility to other people, which is the reason for the giving pledge.
2: What motivates you to still run a company um, when most people your age are playing shuffleboard or they're relaxing or doing something?
1: Yeah, they spend all week planning their haircut usually. (laughs) I I get to do every day what I love with people that I love. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that.
2: And so the greatest pleasure in your life, other than doing interviews like this, is... (laughs) um is what looking at new companies making investments giving away the money what gives you the most pleasure your grandchildren all uh, it's all of the above i mean but uh, the truth is
1: that that i regard berkshire hathaway sort of like somebody that a painter regards a painting the the difference being that the canvas is unlimited so uh, there's no finish line at at berkshire and it's it's a game that you can continue to play
2: any word of advice you give to somebody who's a young investor who would like to emulate you, what you would recommend that they do to kind of build something close to what you've done? I think you should look for the job
1: that you would want to hold if you didn't need a job. I mean, you're you're probably only going to live once. Surely McLean may differ with that or a few people, but and you don't want to go sleepwalking through life. And you really, whether you make X or 120% of X, really isn't remotely as important as to whether, in most cases, you marry the right person and you also find something that you would do if you didn't need the money. And I've, I've had that job for, you know, 50 or more years. And I was lucky in that I sort of found early on what turned me on that way. But but don't settle for a, something if you can possibly. Don't worry about making the most money this week or next month. I mean, when I w- went to right. offered to. Work for Ben Graham. I said I'll work for nothing, and I meant it. You know, I mean, I, just the idea of being turned on. So, look for look look for the job that turns you on. Find a passion.
2: The David Rubenstein Show.
0: I'm Mark Halperin. And I'm John Heilman. And with all due respect to Team Trump, it looks like the Democrats think they've got this one in the bag. (music) On a day when the New York Times delivers thrilling details about a new Tribe Called Quest album, uh, we strike a musical theme on the show tonight, including Donald Trump's change of tune and the Clinton campaign's Blue State Jam session. But first... The polls pick up tempo. We can barely keep up with the onslaught of surveys from key state polls by Quinnipiac, CNN, and other organizations that flooded our inboxes today. With less than a week before E-Day, Florida remains a razor-thin race. In one poll, Clinton is up by one point among likely voters. In the other, she is up by two points. In Ohio, Donald Trump is ahead by five percentage points. In North Carolina, Clinton leads by three And in Pennsylvania, Clinton leads by five points in one poll and four in another. In Wisconsin, where Donald Trump campaigned yesterday and Mark Halpern was, Clinton is still up by six, while her advantage in Colorado has shrunk to three points. While in Virginia, she's up by five.